welcome to episode 42 of the Becoming Human podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Cami Tasker. She's an Army combat veteran. And she's the founder of Running for Combat Veterans, a nonprofit helping veterans that fall through the cracks and find the care that they need and guidance they deserve. Life is a curious thing. No matter how hard we work for our dreams, we may never see them blossom. The process along the way to our dreams is mired in struggle, fear, and suffering. However, the evolution of our character as we overcome these adversities is profoundly rewarding. And Cammie is a very kind and diligent person. Her diligence is echoed throughout her story from her service to her long road to recovery. She often finds tranquility running the trails in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest where she chases adventure and solitude. I find that after running for a while, I drop into this place. It's like um, after I found my rhythm, my pace, I'm able to go into a place in my mind where I don't know. I'm able to work things out on, in a different way. Listening to her talk about uh, running the trails and competing, I really related to that. Because she used running in the wilderness to help her overcome her struggles. Spe- especially when you're trying to better yourself or you're in competition with yourself. So like if you're running, for instance, and you're at play running, you know, super fast bombing down hills or you're trying to, you know, push uphill and find that edge. Focusing on that edge, it almost provides a sense of relief in everything. <laughs> it's funny how that works. And Kami has a really good story uh, regarding her deployment and her long road to recovery and Man, I was surprised by the amount of bureaucracy within the Army. But also, she talked about camaraderie. I'm going to play you guys in with a song by Pasadena. It's called Doing My Best. If you guys enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find it. And you can drop a comment on the website or... Uh, KillYourKing.com or leave a comment on social media at Becoming Human Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Amazon link and buy all the toilet paper that you need. Y2K? That was scary? Oh gosh, have you heard of the toilet paper apocalypse? Oh yeah. It's coming. It's happening in 2020. In 2020, we will be unable to mass-produce toilet paper. So buy it all now through my Amazon link. It'll also conveniently help the show. <laughs> well, enjoy. You could have been killed at any moment, and I don't think people really thought about that because our job was pretty fun. I mean, we did convoy security operations. So basically, you don't want to be on post because you're with all the brass. And, you know, they're going to bust your ass and you're going to just 
be watched at all times. So we enjoyed getting out on the road and traveling around. We got to see all of Iraq. I mean, it was a dirty, scary place at times, but I mean, a lot of it's super pretty. I mean, salt fields, there's, you know, Saddam's castles, there's like tons of history all over. I mean, we saw the, the city of Ur and the Ziggurat, which was the birthplace of Abraham. Really? We did all sorts of fun stuff. I mean, definitely, you know, uh, could be uh, scary and, I don't know, I guess uh, totally dangerous. <laughs> but we were able to do a couple of things like that and uh, while we were amidst our missions. And so, I don't know, we just traveled all around. And so that part was fun. And we made really great friendships, obviously, that lasts for lives, life. And um, so that was the best part of it all, was just traveling around and getting to know everybody. And in your platoon, you get super tight. I rest for tomorrow. The day will be new. My true love will be there. The sky will be blue. I'll be working, searching for what's true Getting nowhere fast, putting in my dues Oh, I Oh, I Doing my best, it's all I can do I'm doing my best, it's all I can do I'm doing my best, it's the best I can do If it's not good enough for you See, I'm a good man I never hurt nobody And I don't understand why it's so bad So bad Shorty make a mess of me
just want you around Well, I just need you around Around Just want you around Well, I just need you around I just want you before I got deployed and at the last minute um, rather than getting pinned with my second lieutenant I got pinned with my E5 and got shipped with a combat unit an infantry unit so I was uh, attached to a support and then the support uh, unit got attached infantry so I was going over there with people I didn't know anybody I knew like three people from my medical unit we all went together and that was it and so starting fresh and you had no choice in this no no choice at all it was just like we had planned for this officer candidacy for like a year and a half i had transferred from my first unit to the uh, officer candidacy unit and they realized that at that time i had a master's degree and i could get a direct commission so rather than going to the 200 205th unit which was for officer school they said okay we'll just send you to the medical company in a officer slot and you have a certain amount of time, like a year, to get your schooling done before, you know, you'll get bumped back to an enlisted slot. So I went in as like a some kind of environmental science uh, officer, health health science officer, or something like that. That was the slot I went to um, Charlie Med with, which was a medical company in Seattle. And um, so it was literally like we had planned this for like a year, year and a half, and then all of a sudden at the last minute it was like. She got her E5, and she's shipping out with a support unit that's going to be attached infantry. It was like, what? Whoa. It was completely, completely opposite of what I thought I was doing. And uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to be also making a lot more money. You know, I was going down to officer school when the brigade shipped out. So I was supposed to be there in Texas for six months and then meet up with them for the last part of the deployment for like six months in Iraq. And it ended up being... Uh, the whole time in Iraq as an enlisted man in, in combat and a difference of $50,000 Whoa, pretty much. So, that's a lot. So, right, uh, when, again, no say, and I had already planned my whole year with bills and rent in my house because I had a house at the time that I was going to try and buy when I got home. And so that was the whole point was to, like, earn enough money for a house and a car and... Get your life and... Yeah, pay yeah. off my student loans, all that stuff. And so I came home with $34,000 after being in combat for an entire year. And I, as an officer, you make about eighty. So it was like... Uh, wow, you came up really real short. Real short. So yeah, I came home and had to pack up my house, put everything in storage. I lost lost the house. I wasn't able to pay rent anymore. And yeah, it's, I wasn't able to go to work because I ended up getting injured when I was over there. So how did you get injured over so there? So one of the second missions, we fell in on these, basically we we fell in on an artillery unit and then they would ride with us and teach us how to do these combat missions in the Humvees. Well, the Humvees were really deteriorating. They'd been run up and down the, you know, doing these combat missions for however long, how many years. But I guess the unit that we fell in on, they didn't really have maintenance people so for really? some reason these humvees had not been looked at for like nine months I at thought, least like military would be like tip-top shape yeah and... well this wasn't this is uh, i don't know what the heck we fell into but uh 
yeah, basically all the vehicles had to be rotated in and out of the shops. And so it was like the second unit and all of the vehicles were pretty much almost deadlined. And mine was. Deadline means you find a fault when you're doing your PMCS, your pre-maintenance checks, services and maintenance checks. And um, if you deadline the vehicle, that means it's not drivable, obviously. Well, our command didn't want us to come up looking poorly when we first got there so poor leadership yeah so we had to just do it and i found that my combat lock which is a a suction on the door it was not operable and it i wasn't able to get out when i was in the car so i said this is a deadline vehicle you know and they the command came over and they checked it out chief checked everything out he's like well we're not dealing with it till we get to taji and that was that and so i was forced to get in this vehicle um, and mind you, my vehicle was already deadlined, so I was driving another team. <laughs> oh so gosh. I was uh, supposed to be a truck commander, and my team got left behind, and I was driving for another team in their vehicle. And this vehicle was deadlined, and the door was busted. And I'm thinking, I just had a really bad feeling, and I'm super claustrophobic anyway. Like, I had an issue with being in these Humvees, because, like, the window is, like, four or five inches. Whoa. Like, it's really very small and then you're really stuck between a radio and a door and you have more gear and you gear got about you. 80 88 85 pounds of armor on oh, yeah wait, you're not gonna be able to crawl out of a door yeah. you can't open it so, from the inside i was pretty paranoid already just being in those humvees and worrying about getting hit in a, hit by an ied or something so i was just like okay man he's told me but you know I knew when I got in, I was not going to be able to get out without somebody opening it from the outside. And so they figured, okay, well, somebody can open it from the outside. Well, we got outside the wire and we're filling up gas about 20 miles north. Uh, There's another little place called Scania, I believe it was called. What's the wire? Uh, The wire is um, your your camp. Okay. okay. So it's called a... FOB or COB, Forward Operating Base, mm-hmm. or and that's where we were. We were in Talil, which was one of the furthest south uh, Iraqi bases. And so, anyway, we went about 20 miles north of Scania, picked up some gas, and we're heading outside of the wire of there. It says everywhere you go, you've got, yeah, mm-hmm. you've got precautions and a way to get in and out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were leaving the wire, and our vehicle caught on fire underneath the driver's seat. So I'm driving, or I'm sorry, passenger seat, which is the truck commander seat. So I'm driving, and it caught on fire underneath my sergeant's seat, and they all got out. The people you know, in the passenger seat in the back. And then of course the gunner hopped out of the gunner's hatch, which is on top of the roof mm-hmm. basically. And I'm stuck and there's black smoke everywhere and I can't see anything. I can't get my seatbelt off. I cannot open the door. They were unable to get the door open from the outside, which is what we had planned when <laughs> something like this happened. So now I'm stuck inside this vehicle and I basically just spent like three or four minutes like fighting and I broke everything and I didn't know it. Like I broke my elbow and but. I tore ligaments in both wrists, uh, slipped discs in my spine, getting pulled out of the gunner's hatch. And didn't know any of this till, you know, right now, really. (laughs) Because when I got home, it's taken nine years to get fixed. But uh, that was just what happened at the time. And I think everything got worse because I used all of my body for the entire year. This was the beginning of the deployment. And it was super freaky. And I had smoke inhalation, and then I was just, you know, back back seat riding around for the rest of the mission. And the mission came first, so I didn't get to see a doctor till we got done with this mission. It was like three days later, and I just kind of rode along with everybody. And I don't know, I I can't even remember what happened with the vehicle. I think they 
you know, must have deadlined it or put another battery in and got it running again. Like, I can't even remember what happened. Put another battery in it yeah. and get it I, running. I don't even remember at the time. Like I said, I had smoke inhalation issues and I just remember like being passed out, like sleeping for like three days. So I don't honestly even remember. And it might've just been like, I got PTSD from the issue. Yeah, especially being in a dangerous place. Cause I'd be like, yeah. yeah. All I know is I was just paranoid and I, you know, was just told to ride in the back the rest of the time. And I did. So I just sat back there and shut up. And so basically I got transferred a couple of different unit, uh, platoons. There were four platoons in our, in our company and I kind of transferred around to two of them. And then one of them got combined when we moved North to, um, joint base Bullard because we needed a bigger, uh, like mission. Like when we go out on missions, you need more vehicles up there cause it's a lot more dangerous. So yeah, the first few months we were south, but we were very good at our jobs, so we were being called to do all the jobs northern, um, which is the very dangerous part of Iraq. So they just decided after a few months that they were going to move our whole company up there because we were closer, and, you know, we wouldn't take 16 hours, <laughs> days, you know. It would be like we'd get a leave and then come back home, you know. It, it would just honestly take like 10 or 12 hours to even get up there and then we'd have to do the mission so it was wow. like it was like sometimes we'd be in the vehicle like 24 hours almost so they thought okay we're gonna move the whole company and that's what ended up happening and then we only spent like the last three months up north and that's after you've been injured <clears throat> yeah so i worked injured the entire year i didn't know till after the fact that my uh unit didn't tell our command uh, my my platoon didn't tell our command what happened really? that day yeah and i didn't know that till honestly like a like six or six or nine months ago and this is almost nine years later you weren't in pain during this this time yeah Whoa. so whenever i went to the tmc the troop medical center for something it like you got had to pick one body part that hurt like super bad and it was always my left elbow because i couldn't bend it like it was stuck at like a 45 50 degree angle for like a year or two well i guess by the time i had surgery it was a two two and a half years so and but it was bad and it always hurt and they would always just, we didn't have any medical other than an x-ray machine. Like, so they never like could see anything cause it was like this terrible fracture and like bones floating around. And I don't know why they didn't see this, but they couldn't see it. And so they just kept giving me cortisone injections. And if you got broken bones and things floating around and there's already not enough room, oh my God, it was like nine times worse the pain when they would do this. So after like three of them, I was like, dude, I can't let you do this anymore. Like it hurts so bad when you do these injections. I don't know why they're supposed to make it better, but no, they don't. So like I said, I didn't even know until I did this like November 18th, 2008, and I didn't have my surgery till September 2010. Wow. So I went two years with a broken elbow and like bones floating around and it was so bad. Like the osteo, whatever, it, mm -hmm. the osteo desiccans, the little pieces of bone reattached himself to the broken, the, the fractured elbow. By himself? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So that like when they did surgery, they had to like do all sorts of like suctioning and shaving and yeah, I don't know. Wow. But all I know is it felt so much better. But <laughs> yeah, so that was, and the VA is the same way. It's no different than the military. They look at one thing at a time. So I honestly spent the last eight years having surgeries, one after the other, and I never even knew mm -hmm. what was wrong until I would come across the new body part. Like, yeah, I got to work on something else today. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. So because it got covered up, this whole incident, and then uh, I can't, it was <clears throat> basically what happened is, I signed up to be promoted 
uh, as an enlisted man because I didn't want my career to like still be at a standstill just because I didn't make officer. So I was going to go and do, we were being waived physical fitness tests for Warrior Leadership School, which is a NCO Academy, non-commissioned officer academy. So I was an E5 and I'd been working in E7 position for the year in Iraq as a truck commander. It's an E7 slot. So I'm already working two you know, ranks above me, wow. two pay grades above me, and, you know, not getting paid for it at $34,000 for the entire year. <laughs> but I was already making, you know, doing this job, and I wanted to have at least an E6, so staff sergeant rank, and I knew I was up for promotion at that point. I was only an E5 sergeant. So uh, because the physical fitness test was waived, I thought, okay, I got a shoe in, I can get promoted, and I don't have to do push-ups, sit-ups, or run because I'm, I'm busted. Yeah. So I said, I got to do this. So I went down with like five other people, I think five or six other people from the whole brigade, and we shipped from um, Iraq to Texas to Fort Hood, and I was there 10 weeks. Uh, doing the NCO Academy, and then came home behind the brigade in July. They came home in July. I came home in August. So I got off active duty orders in 9909, and that's where the mishap happened because basically the National Guard told the Army that I came home in July with the whole brigade, and I had the opportunity to demobilize and use all of this time <laughs> on active duty to have gotten into these programs, but I, I wasn't even home yet. I was behind the brigade and I tried to ask for medical help when I was at Fort Hood and they said I had to do it when I got home to Washington. And same with, uh, we actually went back from Iraq to Fort Hood or um, Fort McCoy, which is where we pre-mobilized out of in Wisconsin. And I asked when I got there, where do I get medical help for my injuries in Iraq? And they said, Fort Hood. So when I went to Fort Hood, I asked my you know, instructors there, where do I get help for medical from Iraq? Oh, you do it when you get home. So I came home. And that's the thing is I listened to my leadership and that wasn't the truth. So I get all the way home and they said, oh, you should have done it back at Fort Hood. And it was like, okay, well, I didn't. I was told. I was instructed. I did what I did. I'm home. Like, how do I get help now? So I filed all this paperwork with the National Guard to try and get into it. Like, first of all, incapacitation pay because I, it's active duty orders and you're still getting a paycheck and I couldn't go back to work. Obviously I wasn't like, everything got really bad once I stopped moving, meaning once I stopped using my body the way I was in Iraq and then came home and, you know, wasn't heavy lifting and moving anymore. Like things got stiffened up. I got super sick. Like it was bad for the first like six months home. Like sick, like uh, like cold sick and stuff. No, vomiting. I had some kind of autoimmune reaction started then. Uh, and I got like gained a lot of weight and I was throwing up after every meal, but only eating like five bites of every meal. Like my body just wasn't digesting food for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it was a big problem. Again, I still, all I know is I got involved with a naturopath in 2010 and basically detoxed from mm -hmm. I, whatever we were into in Iraq mm -hmm. and the chemicals the VA had me on because they had me on methadone and ibuprofen for the first year, year and a half. Wait, so you're going, so you've gotten back, right? And you're filling out all this paperwork <clears throat> while yeah. you're going, while you're just going through the shit house of being like utterly sick. Utterly and sick and packing up my home and having stuff in storage and living out of my car. <laughs> all at once. Yeah. Wow. So I decided I had family in a Walla Walla. I don't have any close family. I just have extended. Um, my mom left when I was about 12 and got remarried and moved back to her hometown in Walla Walla. And my dad was a only child. And honestly, when they got divorced, he just kind of 
delve into work and my brother and I kind of raised ourselves and my dad said you've got two choices you can either work after school or you can play sports and I was super athletic so that was a no-brainer um, and so I just was a triathlete all through high school and kept myself busy with that and then we would visit my mom in the summers and work on her wheat her husband had a wheat farm so we worked as uh, combine drivers uh, on the wheat wheat farm <laughs> no. so I had, and that was like 13 hours a day six days a week so I mean I, I oh like my. had a pretty I, my work ethic, I've been working since I was 12 years old, like yeah. literally since I was 12 years That's old. That's astounding. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, mm -hmm. but came home and applied for incapacitation pay, applied for, um, the warrior transition program, which is also a program where people that are injured in combat can come and they basically live down in Fort Lewis area and they have active duty orders and they're getting paid while they're getting fixed. Yeah. And this is where you get your body done all at once. Mm -hmm. So that didn't happen with me. And I did all this paperwork. I went to my unit. I went to JAG, which was a bad move, I guess. JAG is like the military investigative people. So my command, when I came home and got reunited with the medical command that I was with, you know, I was trying to get help. And they looked at it as me jumping the chain. When you go to JAG, you, you're jumping the chain. You're not allowed. But my unit wasn't helping me get fixed. And I only had a certain amount of time. You have 90 days when you get off active duty to be able to apply for these things. And when you were trying to get help um, from your command, what were they, were they just telling you that you, you can't, you don't? Well, I, we would do the paperwork, and then when I would check in with the people down at state, they'd say, oh, it wasn't done, or it wasn't done right, or you didn't file it here, or you filed it there. Like, they, it was just always wrong. It was wow. done wrong. And, and they would blame me and say, well, you didn't do it, you didn't do it. I don't know how to do it. That's why I'm help, you know, working with my command. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how to do all this paperwork. So that, again... I should have gotten an attorney or something. I like that's the thing is like you. I don't I know. know. I don't know. Yeah, you don't know what to do. I've never been in this position. You think your leadership knows what they're doing and they can help you, and it ends up not working. And then who's to blame? Who knows? And isn't that how it's sold too? Is like we'll get you taken care of, whether it's like with school and stuff like yeah. this. Like you know, we're we're here to help you. And if you and also with like you're talking about jumping command, and you say this throughout, you know, all, all aspects of your career in the military. Um, if that's something that that is obviously hammered into you, then of course I wouldn't get an attorney. I'd be, you know, yeah. trusting in my command. Exactly, and that's the hardest thing. Is like, I will have NCO leadership say I jumped the chain of command, and honestly, for the times I could have, should have, would have, I had didn't. I jumped maybe once, like every two years or something, and it was because I tried so hard going through my chain, and they just wouldn't allow me to do what I needed to do, and. You know, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I did the best I could, and then, you know, when people started saying, you need to do that, like, I would talk to my officers, and they say, you need to jump chain, and we're going to help you. Well, they outrank my NCOs, so, you know, but people are still going to get mad about that. Mm -hmm. So I did the best I could. You know, I got in for three reasons, and none of those reasons, you know, were accomplished by the time I got out. Yeah. So. Pay off student loans to become an officer. Well, the third was to serve my country like my grandparents. So mm -hmm. I guess wow. the third I did do. But, you know, to become an officer and get my student loans and my schooling paid off, that it was just like, nope, neither of those happened. That's crazy. Yeah, so. 
bum dinger. It is what it is. Yeah, but and when you went to go and you went to JAG, right? With yep. Investigation. I did, and that was like a year after I got home. It wasn't, or maybe even six months. It was. It was a long time I waited for my command to step in. And so at this point, you haven't had received any care for your injuries no. or anything like that. I, are they getting worse or are they? Yeah, getting worse. I mean, I was working with the VA. Uh, like I said, my extended family lived in Walla Walla, mm -hmm. and so I asked if I could stay with them for a while. So I drove over there and just lived in a basement. Of mm -hmm. I, I moved in with my uh, my real mom for oh, a wow. while, which, yeah, we hadn't we don't have a relationship, so it was a mm -hmm. little strange and. You know, after about five or six months, she asked me to start chipping in on rent and working on the farm. And it was like, I can barely move. That's not going to work. Yeah. So I ended up having to go stay with a cousin and then just rented a room out from her. Um, like I said, I still had the money I made in Iraq. So I didn't know anything about unemployment. I didn't know, other than in-cap pay, I didn't know how to get help. Did you go from <laughs> high school to military? Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Well, I mean, I went to college, but yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, because you don't have, you're not, you weren't integrated into the workforce, essentially. Well, I went to college and worked full-time, but I've always been on my own. I moved out when I was 16, mm -hmm. so I've always paid for everything on my own, done everything on my own. So all through college, um, bachelor's and my master's, I was working full-time as a waitress and... Uh, or a server or a bartender mm -hmm. and so I worked full-time and did went to school so I was able to function you know function do everything I never had any blocks with my goals or <laughs> getting anything done until I got in the military and wow. it's like other people stand in your way and mm -hmm. they really do like I did the best I could to make my career something and I didn't get anywhere yeah and that's never happened in my life whether it's in sports athletics you know with jobs uh, school, anything in the civilian world, you follow your dreams, it happens. But, mm -hmm. you know, you, you work for it, everybody will say the same thing. If you want it bad enough, you can get it. Well, that doesn't happen in the Army. Mm -hmm. People are in front of you, people are ahead of you, people hold you back, and especially as a woman. I mean, nobody wanted women to be in a combat role, and that was my role for a year. And then I've also, on top of that, had to prove where I was and what I was doing. Right. So that was another part of coming back and being denied care, is a lot of the active army didn't believe we were where we were because we were women. And it was, I've had to try to prove this and it's incredible. It's been incredible. And even with medical records, you know, the few that I do have from over there about mm -hmm. my spine and my elbows and my wrists, um, the medical records didn't give me the care I needed because the line of duty forms weren't done by our medical uh, staff in, in this company I was with. And your livelihood yeah, has nothing they, to do with what you did. The, they didn't do the medical work for the line of duty forms. And you need one for every body part. So that is what I've been doing for the last eight slash almost nine years <laughs> is getting the line of duties done um, with doctors in the community mm -hmm. um, and try, you know, fighting the VA. I'm now on appeal number 14. I've gone through 13 appeals. I've won every case but my last case now. Um, and it's my autoimmune and we're still trying to figure out what we've got going on with that. Mm -hmm. So, and that's the last quote-unquote injury I have out of the nine. That'll be the ninth. So, so like the doctors, essentially, what's the process of them having to uh, establish that your injuries took place or verify that they took place? That's that's the hardest thing is the autoimmune stuff. There's no real re like it's not going to happen without a diagnosis first mm -hmm. of all. So that's the issue. I've been was diagnosed with lupus in 2010 by the VA, but that 
I just found out was erroneous. <laughs> yeah. We just did blood tests and they said it's not been that autoimmune disorder. It's something else. Wow. And we think we know what it is as of like two weeks ago. I'm just waiting to get uh, the test, the approvals from the VA right now to get choice to cover my doctor's appointment so we can confirm. But I think I know what it is now. It's a super rare neuromuscular uh, autoimmune disorder, but it's not lupus like they thought. And so, yeah, I've been trying to live around that one and it's been kind of feeling, feeling about twice a year. I have major autoimmune allergic reactions and it just takes me out of my life. It started at four days back in 2008 or nine mm -hmm. or nine. I, it didn't happen until I got home. So it started at like a, a couple days a month, like when it would happen, and now it lasts. This last one lasted like two months. The so it's getting worse, Whoa. and that's why I really got to figure out what what's taking me out because I was at the end of my race season this year, and I had to bail out of my last race. <laughs> That'd be scary too. It is. Like it is scary. Oh, no. I look like the Hulk when these autoimmune. <laughs> I, I showed you a picture. Yes, you did. Maybe though. My entire could, face, my whole body blows up. And you can the, just look at competitors in the face. Maybe yeah. it'll distract them long enough. Well, and shoot, then... man, I can barely see my eyes. Eyes swell shut. Oh, so that's that's, that's the hard part. The eyes and the throat are what scares the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the throat. And so I have oh. to get to the ER. I now you know have epipens in my that's glove good. box, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like when you so when you were going through all that process and walla walla, you know, just finding a place to stay, and you're trying to get the coverage you go and you go to jag right mm -hmm. and, and this is in seattle so i'm driving oh, back and okay. forth whoa really yeah that's like a what i'd say four and a half hour yeah. drive so one way. here's what my first year home looked like i lived in bellingham moved out and by september october i was back i was in walla walla i think september october somewhere around there and then i had my military unit was the medical unit in seattle so i was driving to seattle from Walla Walla every month, once a month for National Guard duty. And I would plan my VA visits around that. So um, I would plan like the Seattle, if I was at the Seattle VA or whatever. So pretty much for the first year, I just was in Walla Walla doing VA stuff there. And then the big clinics like rheumatology, dermatology, uh, autoimmune, like all that, all that stuff was in Seattle. So I would plan my appointments like on a Friday at like four or something like that and then go there and have an appointment and then do drill duty and then have an appointment like Monday and then drive home. Or some days I'd stay a few days if they had to do like multiple tests, if it was like skin patch tests or like a scope of some sort. I mean, I mm -hmm. literally went through the ringer. I had everything done to me over there as a oh, lab wow. rat for the first couple of years. So wow. that was that. And then I ended up transferring after I didn't get any help. And then, of course, me going to JAG pretty much ruined my career in the 81st Brigade, which is what I was a part of. And the, that was the, com the command that I deployed with. So basically, I needed to get the hell out of there if I was going to... I mean, the, my, my commander was trying to kick me out. My first sergeant tried to can me, like he did. So I had to get the hell out of there. So I transferred and took a, a promotion over in uh, Grandview, Washington, which was... Uh, outside of Yakima. Oh, okay. And so, closer. yeah, so it was closer to where I was living. It was closer to the VA. And then um, that's when the National Guard, because I was getting mixed information from the family readiness groups. So basically they would tell me, if you move to Snohomish County and get a permanent residence here, we can get you a job, housing, food, uh, employment, da-da-da. So then I started 
trying to do what they said. So I ended up moving back because I was starting to have surgeries. I was going to start to have my first surgery in 2010, September. And it was like the summer. Were they paying for it or were you, were you having to foot the bill? Oh, I foot all the bills for like gas and everything. Mm-hmm. Like all that. I, this is what Whoa. I was living off of this money from Iraq. So I ended up having to spend all the money, the 34000 that I made, oh, yeah. to live for the first year and a half because I didn't know much about unemployment I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't think I could take it honestly and wow. um, the VA only had like they had like me 10% for my elbow and that was the only thing they had on the record and that was like 200 bucks a month so I really wasn't making anything for VA disability mm-hmm. um, nothing had been looked at yet That's crazy. and so yeah the first couple of years I just made a couple hundred bucks from the VA every month that was it it was like I didn't have much money and then I got smart and I started finding out the VA would pay for hotel and gas if I had appointment late in the day or early in the morning. They didn't just tell you this hour. No, it sounds like you had, had to research I had a whole this. entire year oh that I had been driving back and forth that I could have been getting like gas and hotels. So I started getting smart and then I would, like I said, plan my drill week, my appointments around drill weekend and mm-hmm. I'd stay, like have an appointment at five o'clock so that they'd pay for my hotel and I'd have a hotel for a night, stay with a friend for like Friday or Saturday night for drill and then Sunday night, if I had an 8 a.m. appointment, they'd pay for a Sunday hotel. So I started getting smart and planning like a couple months in advance. And then I would stay in Seattle for a couple days and do appointments and just have early morning or late late in the day. And they would pay for mm-hmm. another hotel. So this is how I lived for year two and two and a half. And the difference between <laughs> that, was it so much less stressful for you? Yeah, money-wise. I, yeah. I, I didn't <laughs> have money. I was running out, running low. So And I didn't have... A way to do unemployment because I was living out of my car and you had to have an address so it Ooh. was like I could I, I basically did what I could do I lived off the money I had and had the VA help pay with gas and hotels when I was getting the doctor's appointments available like done and then the family readiness said like I said if you move here 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 we can help you with job funding money or um, food and housing and so I moved to Snohomish County and None of those jobs, like I applied for two jobs down at state, they didn't pan out. Like basically, I moved around the first couple of years doing what they said and nothing ever worked out. And I still got blamed all the time. Like, oh, you didn't do this right, you didn't do this right. And I'm like, but I went to the family readiness lady, we filled out the paperwork, we submitted it, how do we not do it right? Like every time I got blamed. Yeah. And I did everything anybody said. Like if somebody gave me a contact that said, oh, they can help with food stamps or these people can help with getting you housing, I would go, I would meet, I would do it. And it never worked out. I didn't even get an uh, approval for a VA housing. And it was in like downtown Seattle, one bedroom apartment in the ghetto. I applied for that in 2009, maybe early 10. I didn't get my first, like, welcome, you can have a home for until 2015. Like, one bedroom, crappy apartment for a veteran. Wow. I got approval, like, that many years later. Are That's you helpful. kidding me? Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I waited on waiting lists forever. I did, went to... The civilian world was the only way I could get any help. The mm-hmm. VA, the Army, like National Guard, nothing ever panned out. I did everything. I followed every lead. I've contacted every attorney. I con- I did everything I possibly could do. Like I have at home an entire folder of letters like returned to me, meaning I would write a letter and six to nine months later I would get a response that says, we don't have this availability. We don't have funding. We don't have a job. We don't have this. Thank you for your service every time. And, and that is the line I, I least like to hear, especially on Veterans Day. 
don't thank me, do something for a veteran mm -hmm. because I spent so many years trying to get help, whether it was food, housing, a job. Like I wasn't just begging for, for money. Like I literally wanted to work for it, wanted to get my life back on track and start again. And there was never anything out there. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm starting my nonprofit. Yeah. Um, uh, running for combat veterans, I hope to get going, and I hope to fund, meaning financial assistance, to veterans that fall through the cracks. When they can't get medical, when they can't get, uh, you know, any kind of unemployment, when they can't get mental health, like, this is what I want to do is say, hey, we have, we can front your bill. You know, what do you need? Let's do this. We can front, you know, I don't, to begin with, you know, I don't know how we're going to be able to do a lot of people, like housing or anything like that, but maybe we could help one month rent, you know? I just, that's what I hope is to make this big and get a huge pot of, of money and, and be able to let people, you know, whatever they need, whether mm -hmm. it's food stamps or... And it sounds like just mere advocacy would just mean yeah. so much to someone because like, I, so I have a, a an encounter with someone in Bellingham and he was homeless and uh, he's in his like mid twenties mm -hmm. and I wanted to, you know, just do a podcast with him. Well, I found out he went to the military and he got, um, I didn't vet any of this information, but it was just interesting nonetheless. He went to the military and he was dishonorably discharged because he didn't tell him he had ADD or ADHD or mm -hmm. something. And um, since that was never mentioned when, when he signed up and he enlisted, uh, he was dishonorably discharged. He was just dropped off at the airport where he came from. I think it was down in Seattle. Yeah, and they he, do that. He's 19 <laughs> and he's like, I didn't know what else to do. So like... Um, I went up to Vancouver for a little while and I slept, uh, um, right beside a lake and when it got winter, I just dug a little, like a, a, a hole and I used one of those emergency blankets that someone gave me and I just slept there for a while. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, I've been moving up and down the coast for a couple of years and I'm like, what? Like, how does nobody assume that you probably have no idea of the resources that you have? Or also... They, there aren't any. Who's going to... You know, what what direction are you going to do to take care of yourself? Like... Yeah. And this is the... the I mean, I'm a smart girl. I, like I said, I've never had any barriers until mm -hmm. I came in contact with the military. Like, I've, I've accomplished every goal I've ever set for myself. And they're pretty high. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm... I am a high-speed individual, and no, I'm not <laughs> saying are. I'm better than anybody else. I'm saying this is what I strive for my own self. Like, mm -hmm. I grew up, you know, in a super strict household. I had to start working at a super young age, full-time. You know, I was nannying at 12, and I started, you know, on a farm two years later. Like, I worked as a hostess. Like, I've been working since I was young, mm -hmm. and my mom left, and my dad pretty much said, you will stay out of trouble. And, you know, it, and he's very, very stern. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. We, we were going to get our butts kicked if we did anything wrong. So, I mean, I've had to be a super serious high-speed individual my entire life. Then I got into college, and it was like, you get good grades or you don't get your, your paycheck. Because mm -hmm. uh, student loans, if, if you know, they won't give them to you if yeah. you don't maintain an average, you know, good grades. So I did that, and then, you know, I worked full-time going to college. You know, my parents didn't pay for anything nothing I've done it all on my own and like no college paid for me like like I said uh, I don't know I've been serious work workaholic I've had all these goals for myself 
And mm-hmm. the only time I had anybody stand in my way was this whole situation. And yeah, there were no, there are like hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of these veterans programs out there. But I mean, really, it's just like, you want to get together and like play basketball and have a chili feed? And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, I, I don't want that when I'm homeless. Like, yeah. I, I want to know where I'm going to stay. I want a job. Like, I want to work for it. I'm not asking for handouts. Mm-hmm. I want to work for it. But I need to get stable. Like, where the hell do I go? And that the, those opportunities are not out there. They're just, they're not. I've, I checked everywhere. I signed up for every program. Like, I was on wait lists for everything mm-hmm. that I did. And like I said, I've got a whole, like, whole file folder of the return letters that came to me from all the reg- legislator, legislative staff members, like, re- representatives, the governor... Like, no one would ever let me meet them for an appointment and show them my paperwork and show them that I fell through the cracks. I was supposed to be an officer doing a job that I transferred myself into. You know, I left my unit that was not deploying Mm -hmm. to a unit that was deploying to be an officer and do an officer deployment because I wanted to become a federal agent and you need an officer deployment as a, you know, that's the easiest way to get an agent position in the civilian world Yeah, is to do a deployment as an officer. So, I mean, I literally had all these plans for my future and (laughs) it just didn't, it was like, didn't, didn't work out that way. Wow. Yeah. And then just bury it, essentially. Yeah. That's crazy. And then they, yeah, that's essentially what happened. And then, like I said, the brigade that I was in, because I was making so many waves, they wanted to shut me up and and get me kicked out. And, um, you know, they couldn't, because I never did anything terribly wrong. I mean, I've, I've only had, like, two incidents where I got written up and got in trouble, and it was... You know, once they dug down a little deeper, they figured out why. Like, I was getting harassed by a platoon sergeant here for nine months. And then, you know, like, I got transferred here because of the officer thing. So it's like the two things that have really, you know, I didn't go tell on anybody. They had to dig for it. But I did act out a couple times and get busted. And, you know, I'm glad because nobody knew what was going on deep down. Yeah, and they wouldn't because, have otherwise. Yeah, because I, I I'm not a snitch. I don't get people in trouble. You know, I kept to myself and did my job. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, when I came home, it's just, it's amazing what happened and how it got turned around. And But, yeah, I've got all the documentation still. I've got every single card that was ever given to me. Like, people give you, you know, here, check out with this person at the Opportunity Counselor, you know, the food drive here or the employment center here. I've got cards, like thousands of cards, and I've tried every person uh, that has ever been come my, come my way. It's not like people just give me a card and I'm like, eh, psh, throw mm-hmm. it away. Like, I literally tried every human, every card, every contact that I ever received, and no one was ever, like two people in the entire eight, eight almost nine years have been able to assist me with financial like whether it was like to pay a bill for like six months or like one month like only two services and they were in the civilian world they were not veteran or military at all at all how was how were you doing emotionally throughout this whole period so that all was on the back burner like i obviously had raging ptsd Mm -hmm. and you know the biggest for me honestly is driving and i really believe that it's because we were basically like police officers, fire, you know, ambulance, like that's what we were in Iraq. Everybody had to pull over to the side of the road and completely stop. And we flew by. I mean, we didn't have speed limits. There are no signs. You know, we were basically the police over there. I mean, the military police, the army, Iraqi armies pulled to the side for us. And we had lights, we had the power on the road. And it's like super hard for me 
to like come back and drive around people that go five miles an hour and don't mm. you know the biggest thing is like stay right except to pass no they don't they yeah. don't do this that's the biggest one for me like follow the laws of the road as i speed yeah. but i mean literally like that's the hardest thing for me is is dealing with driving <laughs> but i a lot of my brothers and sisters in arms they, they say the same thing so really? i think it was our job we were in like I don't, I don't really know but yeah no mental health has been um the biggest issue and at, at that basically because of all the writing i did and because of every single time i wrote a nine page essay i would get a letter six months later that said you're wrong you failed you suck here's your sign we you know we can't help you but thank you for your service i literally shut down in about 2015 like i just i couldn't actually maybe even a little bit before no nah, i think it was 2015 i just like shut down completely and i was like i'm not going to get better if i keep reliving this every day nobody out there's going to help me like we've been doing this so many years and nobody gives a shit and in in all essence like <laughs> nobody seems to care and i'm my only advocate mm -hmm. so i shut down and just said i gotta get my life back and i found solace in the mountains so that's how i started mountain running was i was just taking my body hiking up in the mountains and i'd go by myself uh you know there were all these groups of women all doing stuff and i was never being invited so i was like you know what i don't even care anymore if i want to go do something i can't sit at home and feel like crap because i'm not invited i just do it yourself mm -hmm. just like with the va and the army like nobody's going to be your advocate do it yourself mm -hmm. So I just started taking myself up into the mountains, and, and I was walking, like I said, because it was in in and out of these surgeries. Oh, so it was in between the yeah. surgeries? Yeah. What, were, what yep. were the um, the medical staff, would they advise against this, or would they, did it ever come up? No, it never really came up. I mean, basically, I the only thing they give you is, like, an order for physical therapy or occupational therapy, and mm -hmm. as long as you're doing what... Your physical therapy. I always go to PT because I got pretty much a family in Bellingham oh, <laughs> that yeah. I, I've been a part of so long. I mean, yeah. shoot, they've been seeing me. I mean, I couldn't get care for the first two years home. Like I said, I was still in the process trying to get the VA to cover anything. So like they pro bonoed all of my physical therapy the first two no years. No way. Yeah, Bellingham Physical Therapy. Wow. They rock. They're my. They are my rocks. Yeah. Super amazing people, and I promised I would get them paid back, and I did. Just last year, I got Ooh. I got seven years paid back to them through the VA. Wow. That's how big of an advocate I am for fighting for people and veterans and rights and I will always if I make a promise I'll, I'll go through with it mm -hmm. it's integral for a community <clears throat> and also for the future because if they were ever to do that for someone else and they already know it speaks well to that yeah yeah. Pretty much with the VA, they hear Tasker and they're like, oh shit, give her what she wants. <laughs> yeah. This is how much I've fought for myself for the last oh. almost nine years. Yeah, I get my care taken care of. I mean, what's allowed? Mm -hmm. That's the thing is, you know, there's still a lot that's not like... I'm still only allowed a counselor that has a bachelor's degree or below. I have a master's of forensic psychology and I can't figure out my own PTSD. So a lady or a man with a counseling certificate is, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, you're not going to fix me. And that's the struggle I've had. I never got to reintegrate back to society when I came home. So that's mm -hmm. my biggest thing is like, I'm still just kind of floating around like, I don't know where to go. Mm -hmm. Like my anxiety kind of gets the best of me. And some days I, I literally can't function. So I got to drop everything and just go to the mountains. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. And so like you, were you hiking before you went, when you were in college? No. Or was a kid, nothing? No, the Whoa. most I ever did. I mean, I was a triathlete, but it was on the field or in, mm -hmm. in on a court, you know, basketball, fast pitch and soccer. That was my life. Um, played soccer in college. Uh, no, I just started doing it and you know, 
I don't know. <laughs> I got good at it. What <laughs> really? Yeah. So like you started started off walking, and you saw that there were these groups of women. And they went up. They didn't go with you, and so you're just like, oh, I'll do it anyway. Well, the, a lot of it was in town on the trails. I mean, uh, there's Chuckanut Mountain, and I have a lot of trails and Galbraith. So a lot of people, I mean, they do it before or after work, that kind of thing. And I had more time, and I really wanted to learn more about like nature and the outdoors oh, so really? i started just picking i would literally get on a map or get on the computer and i would pick some kind of pass up at baker to check out for the day and you know i'd get the map i'd print it out i'd figure out how long it said it would take how many miles and i just would go and follow the trail and then get to the top and turn around and come back mm -hmm. and i just started doing that and then ah, i just i didn't I didn't, I'm not going to lie, I didn't like people. I didn't want to be around anybody. I just wanted to be alone and to decompress. And there was no cell service, no coverage, you know, I couldn't, nobody could bug me. I couldn't get any phone calls. I mean, yeah, for like three or four years, my whole life was like a 90-year-old woman. Like, I was just <laughs> in and out of hospitals and doctors and like trying to make every appointment work. And I think that's why I have so much anxiety because that's kind of still how my life is, even now that I've had my surgeries, like, I still have to keep up to be able to move. Like, I'm completely, you know, nine surgeries and 32 procedures later. I, I'm, the only way I'm going to be able to live is if I stay active. Mm -hmm. And staying active meaning means your blood's pumping, you're moving. The instant people stop and sit on a couch and that's their life, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse mm -hmm. because that's what my first two years home were. I mean, I was fat, I was overweight, I had, was taking pills, and then I was taking pills for those. I mean, every, every complication added to one another. Like, mm -hmm. it was just... And emotionally, too, it's yeah. just, it's so suffocating when you don't have, like, the, I don't know, it, it physically, uh, a physical obsession and a mental obsession, whether or not those are two separate things or one thing, I think it's, from what I've seen in my conversations, that's critical. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, after a couple of my surgeries, um... I realized like I really got to take care of myself because I get into deep dark depression like super bad and if you give me like drugs or alcohol it's way it's so much worse so I got in touch with a naturopath and I've been seeing a guy in Bellingham since 2010 so I got off gluten and dairy basically said you know dealing with your autoimmune and all the surgeries and all the stuff you're dealing with you, you've got we've got to detoxify you and he said he felt like strong chemical like coming off me the minute he met me so obviously I got into stuff in the military or in Iraq for sure um, and we don't really know what we all got exposed to over there so basically I've been working with him to detox these toxins out of my system they're still in my system seven years later but much better obviously and I'm as pretty healthy as I could be uh, working with him so gluten free dairy free sugar free um, did, for the most part everything did those things uh, have when you went sugar-free, um, did that have a big impact on your um, emotional state and your physical state? Everything got so much better. Like, I was able to digest my food. Remember, I was telling you I got super sick and was, like, throwing up after every meal. Mm -hmm. And I had, like, spots all over. Like, that's why I got the lupus diagnosis, basically. It was just, I mean, the yeah, everything I was dealing with. So, um yeah i don't know just everything got better like my anxiety slowed down depression lightened like 
and it, it is he said we work from the inside out and it is it's what you're eating ingesting bathing in sleeping in i mean it really all takes a toll like i am so clean and so healthy now and like if i come in contact with something my body doesn't like it blows up like mm -hmm. it gets pissed it, it tells me and i'm really in touch with my body and myself I did meet with a lady at Seattle Times five times, and she's, wow. she run, she was going to run a story on me. She wrote an entire story on what happened to me, and she wasn't able to print it because the National Guard stood in her way and said, no, you're not allowed. She's still serving, and she's ours. Whoa. So when I got out, we hooked back up, and then her boss wouldn't let her run it because I'm just one in a million, and, and that's what it boiled down to. She said, what? I said, you've got to tell me why. Like, I feel like I've been strung on for, like, three or four years with you and you know we've put so much time and energy in this paper why can't you the story why can't you run it she says mm -hmm. honestly nobody cares and i really hate to tell you that but nobody cares you're one in a million and i thought challenge accepted yeah exactly that's <laughs> i'm fucking... gonna keep talking that's bullshit <laughs> <laughs> so i mean like i said it's a really liberal t state and yeah. i get that a lot of people don't like veterans or i mean i've had a lot of close friends uh, you know i've shared my story with and they say well it's your own dumbass fault you shouldn't have signed up you know these That's... are what people think here and it's frustrating for me as a veteran and uh, like you're putting your life on the line to help keep your nation free. Yeah, and that's like the same thought though of the the bureaucracy that you dealt with before, with like the the Humvee, for example, it being uh, what deadline. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, you know, just just pushing it along. There's no actual conversation of oh, we need to actually talk about this and try to figure something out. It doesn't matter if you're a fucking veteran, you're a person, and that is no difference between you or I. Like, it's like saying that I'm a parent and I'm superior to you. No, I'm not. I'm just a fucking person. Yeah. Like, that's, and again, you know. the chain of command, I should have jumped the chief and mm -hmm. gone to the commander and said, listen, this vehicle's deadline. Mm -hmm. But I did what I was told. And this 90% of the time I always did mm -hmm. in the Army. So people can say, you know, I know there's a lot of people in the military that don't like me. They can say this or that or the other. But honestly, if they don't like me, it's because I've challenged their integrity. Everyone ever that hates me in this world, I guarantee flippantee it's because I've challenged their integrity. In the moment that you didn't challenge someone's integrity, you end up getting hurt for it. Exactly. And that, wow. <clears throat> and that's what the military says is I place blame on everybody. But it's not that. Like, I can literally backtrack. I have a very good memory. <laughs> like, I can backtrack. I, I can tell you the six people that got me involved in the officer stuff. That's, you know, I can tell you all the people that kept me from this or got me into that or supported me and wrote letters of recommendation. Like, I've got a very good memory. I know who everyone is. And mm -hmm. I've never outed anybody. I can. I could. I haven't. Yeah, You know, exactly. I'm following procedure. I, you know? Did it get me anywhere? No. <laughs> you know, I just know who I am, and I'm a person of integrity. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm going to keep being me and keep telling my story. And Yeah, exactly. And you can tell that you stand by that integrity, too. Yeah. And, and I just want to help veterans from here on out. Like mm -hmm. I said, now that I know how to work the system, it's not a great system. I can get all the care that the VA and the Choice approves, but it doesn't mean that there's coverage for everything. Like I said, I mean, I can't even get mental health help. And, you know, this is a lot of my issue is the PTSD that I've gained from being a part of this whole VA system. It's mm -hmm. been a nightmare. Um, basically, people don't really understand. It takes about 22 appointments to get to a surgery date. Every appointment takes four to six months to get, unless you get really good and get, like me, like I got in really good and I got on this 40-mile-an-hour program. That's what they call it. Yeah, it's weird. But basically, oh. you're supposed to get your appointments approved within 10 days. Well, I, I did. I mean, I quit my job as a behavioral health clinician. 
<clears throat> and I was case managing other people, seven patients a day, and I quit it and I did, I, that was what my job was. For literally two and a half years, I made calls from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. all day. And well, the VA actually closed at like 4.30, but mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> eight to 4.30. And that's what I would do is set up all of my appointments week after week after week and make sure they were all in a row. Full like, time job. oh, it's a full-time job and it's not just one appointment for this or that. Like in order to get surgery, you have to have like the monotonous appointments where you meet uh, uh, first you meet a physician's assistant, then you next appointments with the nurse, next appointments with the doctor, next appointments with the surgeon. In between all that, you've got to have an MRI, an X-ray, a CAT scan, or and then four or five injections. Now these all have to be, yes, they want to literally torture you until they know the body part doesn't work anymore. And they all get but the But they money know the, the day you go in there, because they after with your MRI they know what's wrong then but then you get tortured for another year year and a half and you have to be on medication or you're an incompliant patient like there are so many rules and you literally get tortured and so basically I would go to these appointments you know it's a five minute appointment you've driven two hours from Bellingham to Seattle you see a nurse you know, like I said you see a PA the first time two months later you go back to see a nurse two months later you see the doctor two months later you see the surgeon with the MRI and the x-rays or whatever you've got then they set up these injections and then you do that every two to, th two to three months and that lasts for five or six months because some some appointment sometimes they only do like five four or five injections sometimes they do six like it depends on who the surgeon is and if the VA is like okay we've exhausted all but basically they make you exhaust every other like every other healing process but an actual surgery when they know that's the final outcome they just want to like save money so i would imagine that i wonder if doctors and stuff get paid per visit that'd be something i would love to know because yeah if the thing that i we spoke about it on the phone and it was in the dental industry and the difference between um medicaid or child you know health care by yeah. the government yeah. is that and if they if they go into the dentist's office they'll get all their teeth worked on at once and it's because the dentists only get paid for I, I believe they get they have like a budget that they can operate yeah. on, and if you're a private a person with private health care, um, and you go to the, or private dental insurance whatever, and you go and see the dentist, you they'll set up appointments throughout the entire year because you get charged a visiting fee, and then you get charged an amount of time that you're there, and so basically they make way more money off of the private person if they drag it out, yeah, and they make more money because they spend less time if they bang all your teeth out when you have on state insurance and it's just I bring that up because that is another good example of not incentivizing whether it's efficiency or patient care first it's just money a lot of it at least the time I was having surgeries and involved with the Seattle VA first of all Seattle VA was like second or third worst in the nation Wow. Um, back then, like I have printouts at home that I didn't bring that mm -hmm. I could have written written um, statistics. Uh, I can't speak right no, now. No, you're fine. <laughs> that I could have stayed, you know, read the statistics off of, but. Mm -hmm. Um, basically it was, it was a nightmare. Literally dealing with the Seattle VA back in like 2009 was like a prison let out from like the receptionist all the way to the doctors, like a prison Ooh. let out and everybody got a job. It was a flip a nightmare. Like it was the worst, like I would drive down, wake up super early, go to my <laughs> eight o'clock appointment. First of all, stay overnight. Like I told you, I was getting a hotel room. So I would stay overnight, drive, drive down like on a Friday or Thursday, stay overnight, go to my 8 a.m. appointment. Oh, nobody called you yesterday? The doctor's sick today. 
and it, you're like, well, I just wasted like literally almost 24 hours of my life getting here for this appointment, and like, wow. the doctor's sick, and they wouldn't just say, oh, you can come see another person tomorrow. They, you'd move back to your four months down the road. Like, this is how the VA works. It is so jacked up. You know, there's no social workers, meaning they're, avail they're available, they can't do anything for you. There's no services. Uh, same with, like, veterans service officers. They, they're there, they cannot do anything for you. Like, there's all these programs, and none of them work. Like, literally, I've tried everything, and I can make anything work. Mm -hmm. This shit didn't work for me. Like, anybody. It just, it doesn't work. Like, like I said, unless you want to just meet up with people and make friends and like have a bite to eat, like these programs, none of them work in the nation. I, I couldn't even get help from Wounded Warrior because you need that line of duty. If you, I had my DD-214 said honorable discharge, showed all of my awards from combat, said where I was, how long I was, and they said, yeah, well, you don't have your line of duties. Yeah, but I've got all my medical documentation from Iraq. It doesn't matter. You need the line of duty form. Do what I can to help. I'm not going to say I'm going to be great at anything, but I'm sure going to do my damnedest to try and keep trying because, like I said, like I just don't want anybody to go through what I've been through. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could easily, you know, take my monthly check and sit on the couch and eat and drink and be merry, and I, I don't want that. I want to help people. My whole life, that's what I've strived to do is be in a position, a role, a job a, that I can help serve a massive population for the better mm -hmm. this is my my calling this is what god wants me to do and i thought i was doing it with criminal justice in <laughs> as far as serving and protecting <laughs> and all of a sudden i'm being led this direction where mm -hmm. i'm going to serve and protect but it's going to be a, for a different population completely and you know our veterans kind of are law enforcement in a sense like yep. i said my job in iraq I, I very much so felt like a police officer yeah, that sounded here. like it like yeah. i didn't know it was like that at all yep wow yeah. and that's uh yeah unexpected things and i don't i feel bad saying that because i don't mean to trivialize all of the things that you went through but because of that though you're right you now are in a situation where you can probably help people more than you could have in any yeah, other way i agree but yeah, do you, um, so do, is there anywhere that people can go and, uh, check out either your website or they can contribute to the, um, Combat Veterans Fund? Yes. So our webpage is www.runningforcombatveterans.org. And we also have a Facebook page, which is Running for Combat Veterans and a GoFundMe account, Running for Combat Veterans. And basically at this point, we're gaining donations towards the funding to apply for our 501c3, which is our um, nonprofit organization. And once we gain the funds, um, we then will start putting everything into a pot that we'll be collecting for veterans. And it's going to take probably, I don't know how long it takes for the 501c3 to get approved, but I'm going to guess in a year we'll have our nonprofit up and running. And in the meantime, I'm just collecting donations that are going into a pot mm -hmm. for these veterans that need, need care. And it's all kind of in the process of getting started right now. I just started um, speaking two weeks ago. So I'm going to mm -hmm. just travel around and speak and share my story and try to get this off the ground and running. And like I said, like full full-time goal is to get into Washington and help reform this VA system and change the healthcare system. I'm a part of, gosh, 10, 20 groups online that everybody shares all their horror stories all day long, a day in and day out. And you now I'm so tired of reading it. It's like mm -hmm. everybody's just bitching and nobody's doing anything about it. And at this point, I'm just this pissed off that I am going to do something. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, it's not even about being so angry. It's about like, I'm ready for change and I'm strong enough to do it now. Like I've healed mm -hmm. and, and I've, can, I've, I know I've healed because I'm able to share my story without breaking down and, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to be all over the place when I told my story and now mm -hmm. it's pretty concise. You know, I'm, I'm in a lot better place than I ever have been. And yeah, I'm definitely ready now to mm -hmm. take the stance for everybody. Like I'm always been one to take one for the team and I'm I mean this is a huge team mm -hmm. our veterans are huge our service members are huge their families are huge it's a big deal it's a lot of our whole entire population in the nation and you now we need to give them coverage and you know it's not happening with the change of command mm -hmm. with the presidency and you know I this is how he got in was promising veterans that he could help and he's done not done so. Way late on the forest floor Satiated yet wild no more So lead me to the forest edge Take me to your riverbed Lead me Lead me Take me Take me, take me, lead me to the waters. Water. 